This podcast is sponsored by the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, proclaiming biblical doctrine to foster a reformed awakening in today's church. Stay tuned for more at the conclusion of today's program. Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count, with Carl Truman and Todd Pruitt. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Well, you are listening to The Mortification of Spin. My name is Todd Pruitt. I'm one of your hosts, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Carl Truman. And uh, we have a a special guest with us today who's going to help us think through uh, one of the most supremely uh, important subjects uh, anyone, not just Christians, but anyone, uh, can think about, and that is uh, the divine uh, status of Jesus Christ. Is Jesus Christ divine? Or was he just a great prophet? Or was he just a great moral example? And what does the Bible actually say about Jesus Christ? And uh, our guest is uh, Dr. Greg Lanier, who is Associate Professor of New Testament at uh, Reformed Theological Seminary at their Orlando campus. Um, He's also a churchman and serves in a a PCA church. Um, He's a husband and a dad, a scholar, and uh, all of those great things. And he has written a book entitled, Is Jesus Truly God? How the Bible Teaches the Divinity of Christ. It's published by Crossway, and uh, we are very pleased uh, to have this book in our hands and very pleased to have uh, Greg Lanier as our guest today. Greg, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Good to be here. Yeah, um, Greg, uh, as I was kind of talking with you a little bit earlier, I it, it never ceases to surprise me how often um, I am approached by Christians, some of them people in my church. Sometimes I get an email out of the blue from someone I don't know who finds out, I guess is the way to put it, that Jesus never used the statement, quote, I am God. And therefore, um, in some people, it throws their faith into a bit of a, a tailspin. They're scandalized to find this out. And it's amazing how many Christians raised in the church, raised as Christians, um, are unaware of, of the New Testament's documentation of the divinity of Christ. And, and yet they're looking for that, that statement from Jesus where he stands up before the crowd and says, I am Yahweh, or, or, or some such notion. When they find out he didn't, it scandalizes them. Well, you, you take on that dilemma in this new book and help Christians navigate that and actually prove quite well um, how that should not be impediment. I wonder, first of all, if you would just address that reality. Greg, why didn't Jesus ever say, I am God? Yeah, it is a common question. And a lot of what I cover in the book is is meant for uh, a lay audience where they heard this in undergrad or they read the latest Newsweek post at around Easter time or whatever yeah. that, that throw these kinds of things at them and it is destabilizing. So it is, uh, you know, much of what I cover is not new news for those in the guild, but it is mm-hmm. 
um, hopefully a resource for folks who, who are easily dismayed by that kind of thing. Um, and you know the the cognitive dissonance I suppose that folks experience is that we stand up at least certainly in our church and regularly recite the Nicene Creed, and so we know that the early church held to the deity of Jesus in this full, robust way. And so it's a question of, okay, that's all true. And we can talk about Athanasius and we can talk about all these guys, but what about actually Jesus? And what about Paul? And what about the earliest Christians? So that, that's really what I'm trying to do is get back to the original source and answer that question. In terms of why did Jesus not stand up, you know, on a hillside in Galilee or in the temple of Jerusalem and say, I am God. Uh, I guess there's a couple different ways you can answer that. Um, and one of the points I make early on in the book, and the reason why I don't start the book with where does the New Testament, yeah, where does the New Testament actually take the term theos and apply it to Jesus, uh, is because the word meant different things right. in uh, that era. Uh, you could use that label for angels. You could use that term for uh, Caesar in various ways. Mm-hmm. And even uh, Paul calls, uh, calls Satan, you know, the theos of right. this age. And so even if he did stand up and say, I am theos, that leaves a lot of ambiguity. As to right. What exactly does he mean by that? I mean, you know, even rock songs, uh, at least in the 90s, would, would say, uh, you know, you are a god to me, you know, to, to the person that you're in love with. And so it doesn't necessarily prove anything. Um, there could have also, if, if you put yourself in the shoes of Jesus's predominantly Jewish audience, particularly the uneducated crowds, largely uneducated crowds, or the religious elite, um, if he early on in his ministry started just saying straightforwardly, I'm God, that would have presented a tremendous barrier to a monotheistic audience who would have been tremendously confused that any human figure, certainly a carpenter's son from Nazareth, to make such a claim would have been almost a non-starter. So again, we can't necessarily sort of interview him and say, why did you not say it? But there are some plausible reasons why not. What we actually see, though, is, uh, and, and I cover a lot of this in, in the book, in terms of the way he describes his relationship with the Heavenly Father, the way he describes where he has come from, in terms of implying that he has come from outside the realm of Earth, um, the unique knowledge he has of God, those kinds of things actually fill in the meaning of what would it mean for him to be God in the flesh, uh, such that without a doubt, certainly when you see in John's gospel, the religious leaders start saying, wait a second, he's making himself equal with God. Even though he doesn't say that he is God, he's making himself equal with God. So he gets at it, it appears in a different way, so that the earliest Christians right out of the gate, even pre-Paul kind of stuff, uh, you know, traditional statements that Paul includes in some of his letters, without a doubt, they affirmed uh, his full deity by the time he ascended. So, it's a more of a roundabout way to do it, which I think is why it's hard for folks because you, you can't chapter and verse, where does Jesus explicitly say I am Theos? But uh, there's actually, I think more important evidence actually at right. the end of the day that defends that view. So, and that's what I try to cover in the book. Yeah. I thought your explanation of the varied uses of the term Theos in the first century among Jews and Greeks was really helpful because it helps to shed light on the fact that it actually could have been completely counterproductive for Jesus to make that statement actually, and could have caused more confusion that really on the basis of the other things he said and the things he claimed was a far better way to establish his deity than that one clause, I am theos. And, And I thought that was extremely 
helpful and and I think will be very helpful for lay folks who, as you said, every Easter, because of right. Time Magazine and Bart Ehrman and others, Any, uh, and, have their, and Christmas, have their faith, yeah. <laughs> exactly have their um, faith. And, and you know, just to uh, just to make it clear, I, I do land the book with the handful of places where uh, the New Testament's characters like Thomas or um, or authors yes. like John, Paul, etc. Uh, do actually predicate the term right. to Jesus. Um, and so th- the fact that it's not on his direct lips, I think, can be explained because of the specific nature of his ministry, yeah. the largely Jewish context, the, the risk of being misunderstood. And certainly, when he was misunderstood and, and ultimately crucified for a messianic claim, I mean, imagine how much worse it would have been if he were making this almost straightforward, uh, rather blunt uh, divine claim as well. So <laughs> right. uh, everything he said got him in trouble, but uh, that would have been a doozy. <laughs> exactly. Greg, one of the things that I like about the book is, is it addresses, it seems to me that when you're talking to other Christians about Jesus as God, obviously you've got a sympathetic audience, but there are, there are sort of two, two stages in some ways. One, there's, there's getting people to acknowledge that Jesus is God, and that's pretty straightforward in the Christian community by and large. The second stage, of course, is actually filling that term with content specific to Jesus. And you make a great point at, I think it's the end of one of the chapters, that most thoughtful Christians sort of default to thinking of Christology in terms of, I think, prophetic fulfillment and typology. And you, you say, but that, that sort of only gets you part of the way there, that the kind of the ontology of Jesus or the being of Jesus is not something that's automatically filled out by, by those approaches. Uh, I wonder if you could just uh, talk for a few minutes about why that sort of ontological background is important and, and how you would go about persuading a sympathetic era of it. I mean, it was very encouraging. I know you're a professor of New Testament, and my experience of New Testament guys, not so much in our circles, but certainly in, in university circles that, are, that I they used to hang around in, is that there was a great fear of anything smacking of metaphysics when it came to talking about Jesus, uh, uh, connected often to, a, I won't say a downgrading of the Gospel of John, but certainly treatment of the gospel of john that that separated it out from the synoptic gospels and saw it as a far more speculative document than a historical document in some ways Uh, could you speak to the sort of the the cluster of issues uh there sure yeah on the first point just to fill that out a bit more um and and actually you know i cite the ligonier slash lifeway study which the new edition just came out a couple weeks ago it's even worse Uh, (laughs) so i don't actually know if i would if it's true that most christians would uh at least without kind of stumbling on themselves acknowledge the full deity of jesus certainly the surveys don't bear that out at least among self-described evangelicals that many are actually profoundly confused about jesus being only a good moral teacher, that typical view, or you know, the first and best creation, which is essentially Arianism and new dress. So actually, I'm not 100% sure that uh, most Christians, uh, even in the broadly evangelical world, would, uh, would know really what they mean if they confess the Nicene Creed, for instance. But I think you're right. Most folks, certainly in the Guild, uh, the, the academy that you mentioned, uh, will stop at Jesus was a, the fulfillment of some sort of messianic expectation. And that could be a, of a prophet figure, a priest figure, a Davidic king, all the above. And that is certainly true. Uh, that's not the focus of this book, but I, I hit on a few of those things. Um, and so the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18 and the suffering servant and 2 Samuel 7 and all these kinds of things where he is the... Uh, 
the consummate messianic seed of David. And so the question is, so it's not that that's not true. Uh, the issue is, is there more than that there? Is he more than uh, a Messiah or in particular, what, what, what type of Messiah is he? And so that's more the direction that I tried to, to head. And so that does, as you point out, and any discussion of divine Christology by, de- by definition requires you to think about ontology. It's a very different thing to say, this guy fulfills messianic expectations that may or may not have been right or wrong, you know, but they were certainly there if you look at both the Old Testament and the intertestamental writings. That's one thing and say, okay, we can predicate that to this uh, famous teacher from Nazareth and, and move on. Uh, it's another thing to say, okay, no, actually he is fully God in the way we later uh, formulated in the early church. And so you have to get into ontology and you're right, that is not a comfortable conversation. A couple of ways I addressed it was first, uh, getting into what, what would it mean for him to uh, have a pre-existence? Uh, where do we see that articulated that he can't come to be divine? Sort of like Caesar Augustus sort of theoretically was divin- uh, divinized or uh, Pharaoh. So what would that look like? How would we articulate that? Um, or at least where do we see signs of that? I think part of the challenge is it's not fully fleshed out until later. And so my what I'm trying to do is show, so, well, it at least goes back to these documents. They don't necessarily explain it all, uh, but it's there. So pre-existence is a big part of that in terms of uh, what does John, for instance, mean when he says, in the beginning was the word. And so what I attempted to do, particularly on that point, is say, all right, yeah, we land there. That might be the most clear expression of it. Uh, the word was with God. The word was God. But did John make it up? And so what I try to do is trace it backwards and say, no, okay. Without And you probably notice this. I'm not trying to get into sources of the Gospels, early Christian traditions. Let me stratify Mark and then look at Q and so forth. I don't want to burden the book with that. But, what I, but I actually do it implicitly uh, by trying to go to early evidence for Paul and Mark and then land on John. So I'm actually kind of doing it implicitly. But I try to sort of get underneath what does John mean when he says those things. and. So this could be, for instance, the, as I mentioned, these statements of Jesus about where he came from. Philippians 2 is one of the passages that I land on uh, where you talk about where he, he was in the form of God, uh, the morphe of God. And so what does that mean? And so forth. So I probe it on that angle. And then also, OK, what does it mean when Jesus is incarnate um, and overnight, seemingly, the New Testament authors and the followers of Jesus start predicating things to him, describing him, even worshiping him as the God of Israel. What does that mean? Uh, applying texts from the Old Testament to him that were you know, applied to Yahweh or Adonai in the Old Testament. Jesus sort of filling this role of creator and sustainer of all things. And so I don't necessarily intend in this book to cover all the ground of like, what does, what does the hypostatic union mean? Like, how do we flesh that out? No pun intended, because uh, that requires, that's a whole different kind of discussion and set of categories. But I am trying to say all the fodder for those ideas of the ontological deity of Jesus are right there in the New Testament from the very beginning. They weren't added later. Uh, If I had another book and probably Scott Swain or someone would be better at that book, uh, in terms of actually under, you know, sort of getting behind conceptually what it all means, but I'm at least trying to say, no, the, the, the essence of it is there. And, and a good example would be the genealogy of Jesus and Matthew, where this gets at some of the ontology, even though he doesn't use the terminology. You know, you have this great genealogy of Jesus where everyone 
uh, so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so. It's always a guy begetting a guy. But then when you get to Jesus, Matthew is very delicate in switching it and saying, you know, Joseph does not beget Jesus. Rather, Joseph is the husband of Mary, of whom was begotten Jesus. And then he sort of moves on and says, the Holy Spirit did that. That, in a nutshell, is the ontology of divine begetting through the human Mary, absent the paternity of Joseph. It's just not fleshed out that way. So that's the kind of stuff I try to get into and point people in that direction. Yeah, and I thought that was very uh, important. I'm glad Carl raised that because, um, again, in in a book that you have written for a for a popular audience, a, a, a thin volume for the project you've entered in on, but intentionally so to make right. it accessible. People don't read long books these days. Exactly, to get into these ontological issues is is huge because, again, people will hear guys like Bart Ehrman and others who basically say. The ontology of Jesus was invented by Paul and, and the right. apostles in later in later traditions, and I I thought it was extremely important that you helped to show that no, these things are actually established in the gospel accounts, and you have a, a, a chapter in here on on the trinitarian relations, which I think is very important because, as you point out, just simply establishing the deity of Christ, just that alone, is actually not enough. Right to just get to the point where we say, well, Jesus um, is, is deity, is, is not enough. Explain that. Why, why, yeah. why do we have to go further? No, that's, a great, that's a great point. The, the risk, and, and, and a lot of, if you probably have picked up if you know the scholarly stuff that I'm in, in interacting with at some level that, is, um, that I'm trying to popularize in some way. And this would be works by, and, it's, and it's, I'm mainly focusing on New Testament side of this as opposed to the dogmatic side of this. It's going to be folks like Richard Balcom, Larry Hurtado, mm-hmm. um, who, who passed away last year, uh, Martin Hingle, Simon Gathercole, Richard Hayes, a whole bunch of uh, kind of the who's who within the New Testament world who have been asking these questions for a long time, but it hadn't really been packaged in a way that a layperson could understand. And one of the things that I, I like, basically, like the basic essence of what they're doing, but one of the limitations is uh, even among that group of folks, who would affirm, say, the Trinity with, within the classic creedal sense, there's still a temptation to speak of all of this divine Christology in terms of a Benetarian shape of early Christian worship, uh, in essence, adding Jesus to the Godhead. And they kind of stop there. And I think that's a real, that, that can be an unfortunate step uh, where you are bracketing out the Holy Spirit on the one hand, but also it can lead to some distortions as to what exactly we're saying. This, that Jesus was like promoted somehow uh, to attain a, a divine rank by virtue of his ascension or something like that. So I am trying to say, okay, well, that, that's not altogether helpful, even though a lot of the things that got them there are helpful. And so uh, you know, this isn't a book, strictly speaking, on the Trinity, but I felt compelled. You have to have a chapter on that to right. show that if we want to understand the deity of Jesus, uh, we have to understand it in a specifically triune way. Right. But that is another way and a very, very essential way that we see him uh, as the God of Israel in the sense that we mean, as opposed to a Greco-Roman ruler who, after his death, folks sort of added to the pantheon in some vague Caesar cult mm-hmm. kind of way. And so the relations between among uh Father and Son, Son and Spirit, Spirit and Father, all those things are actually 
essential to filling in the color of what do we actually mean by the, the deity of Jesus. It is a deity that is triune, mm-hmm. um, if that makes sense. And yeah. I mean, I wish I could have spent, I assume Swain's, my, my colleague Swain's book will get into more of that because this is specifically on the Trinity that comes out soon. But I at least wanted to, tr- to trace the New Testament evidence for why would we tr- think that there is a triune or a Trinitarian Christology? Or is there scriptural grounds for that? And yeah. hopefully I answered that at least in some way. Yeah, I, I think it was very, very important, again, because um, we're not just, um, as you point out, we're not just Christological monotheists, we're Trinitarians. And, and not because Paul invented it, but because it is clearly established um, by Jesus's own words, whether we're talking the Gospel of John or, or the other Gospel accounts. So, I, I And it's interesting, just to underscore that, speaking of folks in our broad neck of the woods, theologically, I don't, I don't hit this quite on the head, but I probably could have if I wanted to. I do think there is a temptation to, if, if in the mainline tradition, the temptation is to see Jesus as a moral teacher and basically to bracket out everything else, I think the temptation in our world is to downplay the role of the Holy Spirit, upplay the sovereignty of God, and functionally treat Jesus as mainly an atoning sacrifice. You know, that shapes how we preach justification only so often, third use of the law only or should be second use of the law only, that kind of thing. So actually, I think a, a malformed Trinitarianism, uh, even if we, we say John 1, Hebrews 1, Jesus God, functionally we treat him as more or less the messianic suffering servant, sprinkle a little bit of Holy Spirit in, at the end of our prayers perhaps, and uh, God is the one who is sovereign. And so I'm hoping that this could be one part of a, a broader need or a broader attempt to address that issue that a lot of times our worship and practice, even in the reform community, can be less Trinitarian than it, than it should be. Um, that's, a, that's a big thing to bite off. And so the book's not really addressing that per se, but it is trying to say, no, Jesus is actually worthy of worship. He is fully divine, not just someone who died on the cross for you, but he's sovereign over all things. He's actually the creator. His preexistence should matter for how we preach. Uh, those kinds of, I, I at least sort of tease some of that stuff up. What, what would you say, Greg? I'm, I'm thinking of, you know, this book would be great for maybe first year undergraduates doing a general theological introduction, uh, biblical introduction, or Sunday school class, adult study class related to church. Yep. One of the questions that always comes up when you teach Christology in those kind of contexts is you know, somebody's going to put up their hand, and it's a good question. They're going to ask, yeah, but Jesus didn't know some stuff. <laughs> yeah, his knowledge is limited. So even if he's God, he's going to have to be God in a different way than God is God. That, that's the sort of the way the, the question is, is generally articulated. I know it sort of takes you a little bit beyond uh, your direct concerns in this book, but I imagine that question is going to pop up anytime you try to teach a course on Jesus as God. How would you recommend that our listeners think about responding, answering that question. What are the kind of things you can pull in at that point without getting too bogged down in communication of attributes kind of stuff? Yeah. And uh, I mean, that is a, uh, speaking of the ontology question that you asked earlier, that is really the heart of it. Um, how do we understand him both as fully God and, and the one through whom all things are created, who is with the beginning in God or with God, equal to God of, of the form of God, all those kinds of things. How can we simultaneously affirm that and also explain how, uh, you know, he doesn't know when he's going to return, for instance, only the father knows that. Um, 
I think, I think acknowledging that tension is actually a helpful thing. Uh, there can be a temptation in those kind of contexts to get defensive. And so just pastorally, so to speak, I think we want to affirm that it is a legitimate question. It's a question that's not new. Uh, certainly the early debates on, on Jesus uh, are shaped in, in, to a large degree by those kinds of concerns. It's not a new thing. It's not a scary thing in terms of, oh, man, it's going to cause you to lose your faith and don't ask that. You're going to sweep that under the rug and retreat behind the creeds. Um, I don't think that's a helpful approach. I think you can acknowledge that that's exactly, if you look at the pages of scripture, that's exactly what they're grappling with. Uh, even, you know, when, when, even in John, who, who right out of the gate establishes the deity of Jesus, he then, whenever he introduces Andrew and uh, Philip and so forth, like, well, we've read the Old Testament, this is the Messiah, and then they're still trying to figure out, well, who exactly is this guy? Because he's doing these amazing things, walking on water, stilling the storm. They bow down to him. They feel this impulse to uh, recognize something extraordinary about him. Yet they see him eat. They see him get tired and so forth. And so I think actually just wading into that, say, no, that's exactly what we mean by the divine man, that for him to fully take on flesh and not just appear in the flesh like some of the early heresies would, would hold, we should expect to actually see him have this kind of earthiness to him to be tempted like we are, to take on flesh and blood, as even Hebrews says, he was fully in the flesh and blood, just like we are. So we have to see signs of that. So I don't think that's something we have to shy away from. That's what it means for him to be fully human. Uh, as he clothes himself in the flesh in his humiliation. So I think it's actually a really important conversation. They know that's exactly what we're saying. We're not hiding that. We're exactly mm-hmm. saying that as to his humanity, he is fully subject to our fleshly limitations until his resurrection, just like, and that's the pattern for us. Um, as to his divinity and his the lack of an ordinary generation from Adam, that protects him from sin, but we should actually expect to see that. That's actually, I mean, I think you have to sort of say that that doesn't mean that we're, that the traditional formulation is wrong. It actually proves the traditional formulation. If we didn't see him really human uh, and sleeping and being tired and, and showing compassion or anger and that kind of thing, righteous anger, then we would actually have calls to say, wait a second, he's just, you know, Hercules or something. I don't know, like uh, this weird manifestation of some God from the Pantheon. And that would actually be a problem. So I would kind of lean into it that way and say, no, actually let's, let's, let's talk about that. Cause that's exactly what we should see. The second level course of that, and the second round answer would be kind of pr- introducing hypostatic union, what all that means. But I think initially just probing it fully and saying, no, that's, that's precisely what they're saying. Philippians 2 is a great example. I mean, it takes you from preexistent divinity, full humanity, post-resurrection reign over all things. I mean, that, that's what the early church confessed. And uh, both are true, even though we have to hold that in some, some measure of tension. We just can't you know, the fact that we can't fully articulate it doesn't mean it's not true. It just means it's this the, the unique data of history, datum of history. Great. Well, it's been uh, wonderful having you on the program, Greg. And I do want to uh, recommend your book to our listeners. As you uh, sadly commented a few moments ago, people don't read long books anymore. So this is a a beautifully concise book, very similar actually to the book that Scott Swain has coming out on the Trinity, I think, later this year. Uh, A great idea for a Sunday school class, great idea for a student's Bible study, great idea for personal study 
if you want to sharpen your own thinking or, or be reassured that, that what you've believed since childhood actually has good, solid biblical basis. So I recommend uh, Greg's book, Is Jesus Truly God? How the Bible Teaches the Divinity of Christ. Wish you well with the new uh, year of teaching, Greg, and pastoring. And to anyone listening out there who would like the chance to win a copy of Greg's book, please visit our website, mortificationofspin.org, where you get a chance to enter for a free copy. Uh, And while you're visiting our website, please remember we're a a listener-supported podcast. So if the spirit leads you to make a donation, don't quench the spirit at, at that point. I would urge you not to do so. Until next time, when we will be with you all again, uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. For more on topics like this, visit mortificationofspin.org, where you can find other articles by Carl and Todd, browse the archive of past episodes, and make a donation. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals is thankful for your partnership. With your help, we continue to uphold solid biblical doctrine and equip Christians to do the same. The Alliance is a working coalition of men and women from diverse backgrounds who share a common passion for the truth of God's Word. With your prayerful support, we continue sharing that word with those who are lost and encouraging the church with solid biblical teaching through broadcasts, publishing, and events. The message we proclaim is one of ultimate hope, which originates not in man, but in what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. It's the kind of hope that increases our joy and changes lives. Please prayerfully consider supporting this proclamation of hope to a world that desperately needs to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Join us. You can make a gift online at alliancenet.org support. That's alliancenet.org support. Or call 1-800-488-1888.